Turn in your Bibles today to Luke chapter 1. We'll be reading verses 46 through 55. And as we do, we turn to one of the very famous songs of Scripture. This is the song of Mary, the mother of Jesus, uh, who has gone now to live with her relative Elizabeth, who by a very surprising and miraculous turn of events has moved from years of childlessness also to be expecting. And so these two women gather together waiting for that time no one can completely plan for or anticipate sing to one another, it seems. And here is Mary's song, beginning in verse 46. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. And from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. May God bless the reading and the hearing of the word today. Hashtag blessed. It's become something of a tag people will put on some of their social media posts in some way to identify something they're really excited about having done, usually in privilege and usually in comfort. So people share images of themselves enjoying a delicious or extravagant meal or maybe being on an exotic vacation or a shopping spree at just the right place with the most beautiful designer stuff on. Hashtag blessed. And they want to remind the world that they are, in fact, blessed. The blessedness that Mary sings about, however, is of a different sort altogether. By our standards, from the outside looking in, or from uh, 2023, almost 24, looking back two millennia, we would not see her necessarily as blessed. God has chosen her to be the mother of the Messiah, but in practical terms, what characterizes her life? She's a nobody in an out-of-the-way town, a small village. Her fiancé is convinced, at least at first, that she has betrayed the sacred trust of their promised marriage. We can only assume that as she begins to show then her disgrace is going to be on display for everyone to see. And even more deeply, we know, even by the end of chapter 1 of Luke, that the arrival of the Messiah through her body is a most painful gift. Not just the difficulty and the sometime agony of childbearing, but also the unendurable agony of watching her son rejected, 
shamed and crucified. Simeon in chapter 2 says it this way, this child is destined for the falling and rising of many in Israel and a sword, he says to Mary, will pierce your own soul too. And anyone who has endured that kind of grief knows the sting of that sword, hashtag blessed. And in this song, Mary sings of her trust. She sings of a trust in her God who would do what God promised to do. And she knows and she names God as Savior. Not simply in that individualistic way, we often talk about it as my personal Lord and Savior, but this is a God who is a Savior of her people, and through them, the Savior of the world. And very personally, she gives thanks that God has paid attention to her, that God was mindful of her. The God of the universe in whom we all live and move and have our being has not only promised to save humankind through God's chosen Messiah. The same God that is her Savior also knows her by name and cares for her and favors her. She comes to the realization and gives voice without ever using the word that God loves her. Love is at work in this song. There's a wonderful little hymn that's drawn from a Christina Rossetti poem that says, Love came down at Christmas. Love, all lovely. Love divine. Love was born at Christmas. Star and angels gave the sign. Love came down at Christmas. But what kind of love is this? There are all sorts of ways people talk about love. If you kind of go down the the aisle at Harris Teeter and start looking at the cards, I've always wondered how someone gets that writing gig of writing, you know, sentimental garbage on Hallmark cards and, you know, for proof copy and then distribution all over the place. Sometimes there are deeper and more thoughtful words that are offered. Oscar Wilde once asked, who being loved is poor? Or George Eliot, when she wrote, what greater thing is there for two human souls than to feel that they are joined for life? to strengthen each other in all labor, to rest on each other in all sorrow, to minister to each other in silent, unspeakable memories at the moment of last parting. Maya Angelou poetically reminds us, love recognizes no barriers. It jumps, hurdles, leaps, Fences, penetrates walls to arrive at its destination, full of hope. But my favorite, maybe lately, comes from that little snow person, Olaf in Frozen. He simply says, by the fireside, some people are worth melting for. What's the love that came down at Christmas? 
More properly, who is the love that comes down at Christmas? You might remember Jesus teaching the teacher, Nicodemus, and he said, God so loved the world that God sent God's only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. This love is a living love. It is an enduring love, and it is a saving love. And when Mary sings about that kind of love, she sings about a God who saves souls and more. And the people that are part of those souls. Flesh and blood people. Her celebration isn't content merely to point people in some way toward heaven. But instead, she also sees how God's redemptive work begins on earth. And so Mary sings full-throatedly about a God who fills the hungry, not just with hope, but also with food. And rather than being satisfied with comforting the the lowly with thoughts or with prayers, Mary's Lord is one who lifts them up and grants them dignity and grants them honor, a seat at the table and an uninterrupted opportunity to speak in the conversation. At the same time, God in love shows strength by disrupting the structures that seem to hold this world in their grip. This is a God who dethrones rulers and humbles the mighty. So this is good news. Surely it's good news if you're poor or if you're lowly. But what does Mary's song mean for the wealthy or for those who have power? Is there nothing but judgment for them? Judgment and salvation often seem like opposites, but they go hand in hand in Scripture. And Scripture is unambiguous that those who stand in awe only of themselves and their own power will be judged. Yet if the wealthy or the powerful can see it, if they can be brought down, emptied, humbled. God is saving them from the inevitable outcomes of that self-satisfaction. When they turn their gaze instead from themselves and their own accomplishments to God and to their neighbor made in the image of God, there's mercy for them. Think about Jesus' encounter with Zacchaeus just a few chapters later here in Luke. Luke 19, as a tax collector, Zacchaeus is wealthy and he's a scorned outsider. And Jesus invites himself to a supper at Zacchaeus' house. And I would love to have been a fly on the wall of that conversation. We don't know what Jesus said and what Zacchaeus said and what it was they exchanged there around the table behind closed doors. But we know that after that personal time together, after meeting Jesus and after taking him seriously, seriously enough to put his life and his livelihood in trust in what Jesus had told him, He was welcomed into community. And he was emptied of his fixation on wealth. And he was profoundly changed. His gaze turned from his own self toward Jesus. He no longer saw the world only through his own needs and desires. And he sees now more clearly those that he harmed in his own quest for self-security. 
And Jesus brings Zacchaeus down from all of that. And he brings him up from the shame that he experienced every day in his community. And in the process, liberates him from all of that. And Jesus exerts the final judgment in chapter 19, verse 9. Salvation has come to his house. It's a powerful statement. It's not about social reversal but instead about bringing us all at one level to a new or renewed focus. You may be able to remember, if you've been here since 2016, that this facility used to have a balcony. Remember those days? Caused acoustic problems for those who sat underneath the balcony. It was perpetually hard to hear. Uh, It became a storage space in some of the corners. It was something of a mobility issue for those who couldn't get up there. In many ways, the light and the openness of this space that we enjoy now and probably take for granted are by virtue of removing the balcony. And sometimes all good decisions continue to reveal their value over time. And as I've reflected, one of the great gifts that that design choice made for us in worship is that it brought us all to the same level. It brought us all to equal space before the cross. And as we gather as one body, now we do so without that kind of enactment of the structures that divide us so often in our world. There's no one higher, no one lower. We're all in this together. I think that's a very important thing to remember. Rossetti's poem continues this way. This is verse 2 of the carol. Worship we the Godhead, love incarnate, love divine. Worship we our Jesus, but wherewith for sacred sign, wherewith That is an archaic way of saying by what means or how. What we sing is this. We're worshiping the Godhead, love incarnate. We worship Jesus. How are we going to show it? How are we going to show that love in our worship? It's got to extend as Jesus has shown us beyond a, a, a posture of the heart or the thoughts that we carry with us. On the last night that Jesus spent with his disciples, he gave them a sign. And as he welcomed that group of followers in, one of whom he knew would betray him to the authorities, another so untrustworthy he didn't have any confidence that he would follow him all the way to the cross. Some had difficulties maintaining a humble posture. They struggled as his followers to be able to do all he had taught them to do. And yet he seats them all. He wraps a towel around his waist. He bends down as deeply as he can with a basin of water and washes all of their feet. In the most humble act a teacher could dramatize for his students. This happened to me one time. In the eighth grade, I was elected 
It's hard to believe youth ministries change this much. We had this thing called a youth council, and I was the eighth grade representative on youth council. I was so proud. And we went on a retreat with our youth minister one weekend, this youth council, to learn about leadership and to learn what it meant to be a leader within a ministry like this. And as the concluding act of worship, my youth minister washed my feet and the feet of all the other youth who were part of that. I can't overstate the impact that had on me when someone in my own way I was looking up to for so much guidance and leadership bent down and washed my feet. I wanted to retract. I did not want to receive it. I didn't know what to do to receive a gift like that. From there, Jesus ascends the cross on Calvary. And with arms open wide, embraces all the pain and the guilt of this world. And in love, God raises him to new life. And it's a triumph that love opens for us. The love of God opening this door to all who would follow Jesus through that door can experience an ongoing relationship with God through this life all the way home. And John remembers that night how Jesus taught them. He said, you call me teacher and you call me Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than their master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent them. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. That message must have stuck, must have really stuck, because in the first letter of John, John reminds those in his community in the strongest possible way. We love because God first loved us. And those who say, I love God and hate their brothers and sisters are liars. For those who do not love a brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they haven't seen. The commandment we have from him is this, those who love God must love their brothers and sisters also. In love, God comes to us at Christmas to be with us. And so for us to love must have that same fleshy, empathetic quality. Wherewith for sacred sign, you'll know You'll know as you make your way through your families and through the world and into your workplaces with strangers and your closest of friends, if you're with them, if you're listening, if you pay attention, if you still feel stuck, if you still wonder what it is you might do to show the love that comes to us at Christmas, consider how the Apostle Paul counseled the Christians in Rome. Let love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. 
Love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lag in zeal. Be ardent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in suffering. Persevere in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Extend hospitality to strangers. Bless those who persecute you. Bless do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. And weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Do not claim to be wiser than you are. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but take thought of what is noble in the sight of all. If it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all.